Damn! Daniel, back at it again with the white vans. Dusty man, damn! Companies don't fail because founders don't work hard. They fail because they work on the wrong problems. Have strong convictions, but hold on to them loosely. If entrepreneurs had crystal balls, they would never start companies. This was like do or die on the first day. Hire people that are better than you, sell them on your vision, and then get out of their way. Go ahead and start off and tell us about your company and what you do, and if you want to mind telling us where you're located. For sure. My name is Cam Duty. I'm the co-founder and president of Bellhops, which is a modern moving company enabled by technology that is allowing us to kind of bring a first-to-market model that improves the quality of the moving experience and allows us to run a more efficient operation, which means lower prices for customers than the traditional moving space. So are you just like the Uber of movers to an extent? I'm trying to simplify this as much as I can for someone who doesn't know and is just listening. That is not a perfect analogy, but it's pretty <laughs> close. You know, right. I mean, people don't wake up in the morning and say, <laughs> crap, I'm moving today or I'm moving in five minutes. It's different in terms of the on-demand aspect of the business, but it's very similar in the way that we operate the business. In fact, we have a distributed workforce of a mix of contractors and part-time W-2. They interact almost exclusively through the Bellhops platform for all of their kind of operational prompts and communications and anything that they're doing back and forth with the customer. You know, really at our core, what we are is a, a workforce management and logistics platform enabled by tech. That's a mouthful. They've really trained you, huh? Yeah, I could probably shorten that up a bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just try to make it as simple as possible. Like you said, yeah, I know, but it, it sounds good. Basically, you're different because y'all bring tech to the moving space, which I don't know if it's notorious for it, but it seems like anytime I see a moving company, it's just basically kind of like Craigslist guys. Well, think about it this way. So the moving space is an $18 billion business in the U.S., there are 10,000 local moving companies. The majority of them, let's call it 9,900 of them, are mom and pops, local operations. It's a highly competitive market. There's been very little technology in the space. And pretty much everybody, whether it's Jim Bob's moving company or two men in a truck, they're all operating the same model. Basically, the only differentiator between moving companies today is there are poorly run moving companies and better run moving companies. And you're the best run? Well, it, technology is just giving us such a massive leg up on from an efficiency standpoint that's allowing us to centralize the franchise model so we don't have to have local brick and mortar offices. You know, everything from onboarding to training to operational prompts, performance accountability, payments, you name it, is automated through tech. And it, it gives us a super, super close look at our really big workforce in terms of how each one of our bellhops is performing across the platform. It's just an efficiency play. It's technology is enabling us to operate a completely new model in moving, which is more efficient and able to operate at lower overhead than the traditional space, which allows us to bring the cost down and provide a better moving experience. And how old are you and where are you located today? So I'm 31. Our headquarters is in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We started our business in Birmingham, Alabama. I went to Auburn University with my co-founder. Started the business a couple of years after college, raised our first round of funding, which brought us to Chattanooga. Chattanooga has been a, an amazing city for us to grow this business and something that I don't think we foresaw 
was just building a service business. Sounds cliche to say, but building a service business in the South has big benefits. Yeah, it's been a really amazing city for us. Did your parents just make you move a lot when you were younger and you helped them move? Is that what inspired you to become a bellhopper? Yeah, I can't say that we moved a ton. I can't say that there was any single aspect that led me to starting this business other than a story of my co-founder and I in college had a, a friend of ours, a girl that, that was from South Carolina. So we're in Auburn. Her mom had come in town to, to help her move a couch or she came in town for the move and had no idea how they were going to get this couch from one apartment to another. And so she ended up calling us and saying, hey, my mom's in town. Can you guys come over and move this couch? It won't take any time. So we ended up going and moving that couch. It took 20 minutes. And at the end of it, her, her mom was just so thrilled. And had we were, of course, hamming it up with her. And she ended up tipping us each 100 bucks. That was half of my monthly budget. <laughs> Say definitely. Yeah, so that was kind of the thing where when we circled back a couple of years later to start business, we said, you know, there's really something to a really high caliber workforce that you can find in college kids that maybe know that they're not going to be movers for the rest of their life so they can they take extra pride in what they're doing. That's kind of how it all got started. From the one couch, then you're like, hey, let's just start doing this. So you and your buddy were doing it. But let's expand a little bit further, if you don't mind. That was kind of just this memory that we had. So Stephen and I, actually two other friends, had all been in the real world for a couple of years and our eyes were slowly starting to glaze over in corporate America. And we started meeting about just trying to figure out if, if there was any way for us to start a company, you know, what, what would that look like? And we kind of riffed on it for six months or so. And so this was after college. I just want to make sure that, so you got a job and then you still wanted to make your own company. Yeah. So this was two years after we, we had graduated and I was in medical equipment sales at the time. And Stephen was at, uh, was a commercial banker. And we really wanted to put our stamp on something that was ours. And what ended up happening was we went to, we decided to all four go to a buddy's hunting camp in Childersburg, Alabama. And we said, we're going to lock ourselves in this hunting camp. We're not going to leave until we have a company to execute on. And that's where the kind of the birth of the first business, which was called the Dorm Movers, kind of sprouted out. What city is Auburn in? It's in Auburn, Alabama. Oh, okay. Do you have real jobs in Auburn, Alabama when you're still doing this? I mean, what were you no, thinking? No, we're actually living in Birmingham. And so, yeah, so Stephen was a commercial banker. I was in medical equipment sales. Yeah, so this one weekend, we decided to go to a hunting camp and it kind of all started from there. Your idea was, hey, let's just go be, let's make a moving company and focus on college people? We were sitting around late at night. We had some beers flowing and, and we remember that, that memory of moving Marianne in college. And we said, you know what? Parents just hate when they have to drive three hours, fly into town to come and help their kids move. And so college kids, like moving companies are kind of overkill. Like college students don't hire moving companies to move. It's just always a friends and family type situation. What if we created a kind of a platform where we hired great college students that parents felt good about having in their children's homes and allowed people to, you know, in year one, it was just moving freshmen into the dorms. And so, yeah, like right after that meeting, we got a business license and this was in like January of 2011 and poured all of our savings into the company, which was like a thousand bucks each at the time. And so we had $2,000 in this company and we spent 1500 of it on a booth at 
parent orientation sessions during the summer at Auburn. And then we spent the other 500 bucks on uh, business cards. We went to these like eight different called Camp War Eagle sessions, but it's like parent student orientation at college prior to freshman year. We just kind of hustled this booth as parents came through. We were like, hey, don't worry about moving your stuff in on move-in day. We'll have two athletic college students waiting at the curb for you when you pulled up. You don't have to lift a finger. You know, we were charging 100 bucks, just a flat fee in the beginning. And we were hoping to book 20 customers that first year to just kind of break even sort of on the the business. And we ended up having to move in over 300 students in three days that first year. Appreciate you uh, becoming a Patreon member. Yeah, no problem, man. So what inspired you to become one? There was some content specifically, I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy over at uh, Meineke, I was just like, I had to listen to the end of it. So it it was a good hook. It is so funny that you said that because when I literally just got done editing, the guy said the exact same thing. Really? Yeah. I kept thinking that story was so good. I mean, I don't know if you thought the same thing, obviously. The guy, as you can just tell, he's a grinder, you know, and you want to root for a guy like that. How are you able to do that? Basically, you're trying to make 2000 bucks for that semester. I guess it's like fall semester moving in and you ended up bringing in 30000 that weekend? Yeah, we did. So tell us about finding the college hunk. Was that supposed to be you? Or is that what you were saying? It was a, we both had jobs at the time. So we were going to Auburn on the weekends to go to these Camp War Eagle sessions. You go to your fraternities or something to try to find the guys? Yeah. Okay, that seems like the best, me just thinking logically, that might be. We started knocking on doors all the way down frat row. We had to hire 80 college students that first year. And it was a just a frantic mess. I mean, there was no tech, there was no process. There was no training. It was just like, hey, come help move freshmen in. And I think we paid them like 15 bucks a move each or something. So we had like 60% margins on these jobs. And and it was all just managed on clipboards and walkie talkies. It was crazy. It was like a parent would call in and say, hey, we're at Humes Hall or we're at Dowdle or whatever. We'd say, okay, we'll be right there. And then we'd hang up the phone, get on the walkie talkies and be like, we need two bellhops scream down the dorm, whatever. They'd run down there. We had these neon yellow t-shirts that we'd spray painted our dorm movers logo on. And uh, anyway, it was like over three days, we had done 30 grand and we were paying like 12 or 13,000 bucks in cash out to our labor force. Of course, we didn't have any kind of payment solution or anything like that. So we just told all of our movers to just meet us at the student center. We just sat in the student center with envelopes full of cash. <laughs> and somebody walk up and be like, hey, uh, my name's Keyshawn. And we'd be like, all right, Keyshawn, Keyshawn, here you go. We'd hand him a couple hundred bucks. And then it was actually really funny. In order to get that much cash at the time, we hadn't really expected any of this. And so we had to max out. We had to drive to every ATM within a 50-mile radius of Auburn, just max out the ATM fees on this little business account that we had. They were paying you on the debit card and you had to bring cash out or is it vice versa? They were actually paying through Google checkout okay. on a card and that would go into a bank account. And then, of course, we would just have to go in and we had unlimited withdrawals, but there were maximums on ATM fees or on single ATMs. And so we had to just drive from one ATM to the next on like 400 bucks a pop until we got to 13 grand or something. <laughs> pretty, pretty crazy. Sounds like a good story. So did everything kind of work out that first weekend then? Because it seems like to go from... There wasn't even a warm up because there wasn't a summer B where you did it. It's just all in fall semester when people are moving in. That was your big. Oh, joke. yeah. I mean, it was it was just nothing to just 100 miles an hour. Right. Yeah. Because you got that one weekend and that's it. So that's what yeah. I was thinking. At least usually summer students, you get like a 10, 15 percent. So maybe you get a warm up, but it didn't sound that way. Yeah. No, I mean, this was like do or die on the first day. <laughs> 
So did you just go to the strip club afterwards and blow the money or what? No, we, uh, I mean, our heads were all, we had big egos and started talking about how this dorm move-in business could be a hundred million dollar plus business and started saying, you know, we we might be the world's most foremost experts in moving kids into the dorms. (laughs) You're like this, you're the SpaceX of college dorm moving. Yeah. So we just kind of rode this wave and. I think that's what a lot of early stage entrepreneurship is. It's like you get these wins and you're just delusionally optimistic about whatever you've got. And that's kind of what caused Steven, my co-founder, to quit his job the January 1st of the following year and started eating into some savings that he had. That's kind of when it turned serious. And so at the end of that second year, we raised our first round of funding. We moved to Chattanooga and it's kind of been, you know, everything else is kind of history. Do you want to tell us about, did you get fees on the move out in December? And then what did you do it again in spring semester if you were back on campus? Because I guess it was only about an hour and a half away from where you were originally. The first year was just dorm move-ins. The company was called the Dorm Movers. We said after that first run, we were like, well, you know, we're not really movers. We're just kind of meeting people at the curb and picking up their stuff. We're almost just like, kind of like bellhops. We love the word bellhops because the number one thing that our customers that first year, we got these unsolicited reviews from parents that were just four page long emails of like, oh my gosh, Johnny and and Jimmy were so awesome. They were so respectful to me and my daughter and did everything we could have asked. And I gave them my card and we're going to make sure that we touch base with them whenever they graduate here in four years. And all this stuff. And we had, like I said, no training, no tech, just the inherent goodness of this workforce that we'd kind of put together and the situations that we'd put them in as like the saviors of moving day. That's when we realized we're onto something that's just fundamentally good. What's a bellhop? I've never even heard of that before your company. Yeah, like a bellhop is like the person at a hotel that kind of waits on you hand and foot and carry your bags, set you up with concierge, tidy up your room for you. Just kind of like, it's kind of a word that embodies like service. And that's what I thought. And that's what I, you know, I Google everything to make sure, but then all I do is see everything dealing with your company now, right? Instead of like, I was hoping on Wikipedia or something, I could see that guy. That's who I figured it was. It looks like your brand's basically taken over that word, (laughs) it seems like. Yeah, it's kind of this nostalgic term that has kind of been left behind by society and has given us just an awesome opportunity to kind of own it. It just kind of naturally fits because moving is just, it's a service industry. The number one thing that we can build our brand on, you know, it doesn't really matter what our trucks look like or what our boxes look like that people are putting their stuff in. It's about the individuals that are coming into our customers' homes and interacting with them and their families for hours during a really stressful day. And uh, we're glad. We're glad we have the opportunity to kind of uh, redefine it. Let's talk about funding. And you said it basically was a year or two after you did this first initial weekend. Can you tell us how much you had to come up with and what the deal was with that? So in terms of funding, you're talking about venture capital. Our first round of funding was in late 2012. And that was after we had changed our name to Campus Bellhops. And we were still super focused on moving college kids. And we ended up meeting with a group in Chattanooga called Lamppost Group that kind of fell in love with the business. And I think just my co-founder and I and our third co-founder, a guy named Matt Patterson, the founders of Lamppost were three college buddies that had started a third-party logistics company, had turned it into a $500 million business. I think they saw a lot of themselves in us. And I think we got the, the easiest seed round of funding of all time. 
They weren't Bama fans, is that why? Actually, yeah, one of them definitely is a Bama fan. <laughs> you make sure you know. <laughs> <laughs> We've kept that from him this long that we actually went to. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. But no, so we kind of started a relationship with him. We went up to Chattanooga to ask them for advice because they'd started this venture incubator, kind of a tech shop. And they're the only people we knew. Stephen and I weren't technical and we knew we needed tech to scale this thing. And, and so we drove up Chattanooga and just sat on partners of Lamppost down and said, look, we think we have something pretty cool here, but we need tech to, to scale it. How do we build a tech team? About a month later, they were saying, look, we really like you guys. We like the idea. We think you guys can do this. We want to invest a bunch of money in your company, but we need you to move to Chattanooga. And we said, oh my God, we didn't even expect, like at the time, I didn't even know what venture capital was. And so we decided to pack our bags and head up to Chattanooga. Well, before you talk a little bit more about that, how did you find these guys? My co-founder is originally from Birmingham. And one of the, the founders of Lamppost was from Birmingham. They were kind of family friends. I just want to make sure that we understood a connection there, like or at least reaching out and figuring out. But if you have family friend, obviously makes it a little bit easier. So yeah, tell us about your move up to Chattanooga, Tennessee then. Yeah, so we raised our first round of funding, which was 600000 That allowed us to kind of build out an initial team and start building tech around the business. And we really considered 2013 our first year in operation. I think we initially were hyper-focused on still wanting to change the way that college students move. But we started getting a lot of requests from customers that weren't students who were saying, hey, look, we've heard you guys just have some wonderful college students working for you, and we've got a U-Haul. You guys just come and load us up. Like any, I think, tunnel vision entrepreneur, we were just like, no, sorry, we only move college students. It's kind of our thing. The market just kind of kept like slapping us in the face. Be like, wake up, wake up. <laughs> you need to open up your services. And finally, on like the 20th request, we're like, all right, well, let's just try one, see how it goes. And that's really when the business started taking off. And we realized that the rest of the country really shared a lot of the same needs as college students when it comes to moving, where there's a big gap in the market in between do-it-yourself moving and hiring kind of these incumbent traditional moving companies that are overpriced and non-transparent and, and unreliable, we were kind of fitting this perfect middle market option that fit right in between. So we started moving non-students and soon enough, within a year or two, students started making up for single-digit percentage of our customers. And I think in probably 2014, 2015, we started really setting our sights on the mainstream moving market and realizing that we had built this really robust tech platform that was capable of delivering a super high level of quality and continuity in a workforce across a number of cities that we wanted to get into the full service moving space. And so actually 2014, we said, okay, we were a labor only company. We, we were hyper-focused on building this extraordinary labor force because we've always believed from the beginning, you know, this is a service business. The one thing we can, our brand rides on the shoulders of the bellhops that are executing every move. So we got to get that right if we're going to win this space. 2014, we started feeling good about where we were with labor. We added a button in our order flow where we said, you can pay us an extra 125 bucks and we'll show up with a U-Haul and do the whole move. You don't have to go get a U-Haul. You don't have to do anything. It's just a full service move, just like any other moving company. Within 100 days, we'd become top 100 customer of U-Hauls. And we're breaking a bunch of regulations and the Household Goods Commission and got a bunch of cease and desist real fast from a bunch of different states. We kind of pumped the brakes on that test and we said, oh my God, okay. You know, we'd booked like 2,500 trucks in 100 days. And we said, uh, man, okay, 
we'll, let's pump the brakes on this and become compliant and we can come back to it after uh, we've kind of jumped through all the hoops. I'm glad you're able to catch up and see those old group calls and those are definitely helping. Yeah, and probably the most helpful one has been with a gal that did PR. Megan Bennett. Yes, yes. Like I listened to that whole thing with all the people's questions and her ideas. And I like how, you know, you got her to tell more stories than just the regular interview. Yeah, and before we jumped in what you had to do to become compliant, I feel like we kind of jumped over you guys moving to Chattanooga and building out this tech part of your business. Can you explain that a little bit more how in detail or a little bit more in detail, like how long it took and what you were trying to accomplish and what actually happened? Because there was no tech play before this. We hired our first technical hire about two or three months after we had moved to Chattanooga. This was in probably December or January of 2013. And uh, we're really excited about writing code and starting to build out the first platform that we could really kind of go into the busy season of 2013 with, with a, you know, head of steam and being able to pay bellhops digitally and have a job board where bellhops could start claiming moves. And it was about April when in our tech was about 70% built at the time. Busy season really starts in May. So it was just 100 hour weeks, just crunch time, just burning at both ends. Our CTO tells us that he is going to be moving to Seattle to go work for Amazon. <laughs> and our tech was in kind of in shambles. Your CTO? Yeah. Our first technical hire, we had named our CTO. And so here we were kind of just hung out to dry with no engineers, a tech platform that wasn't fully built and busy season and moving is coming up. And here we are and we're venture back to business at this point. How are we going to get through this? That was a tough time. We'd already been, like I said, working hundred hour weeks and we ended up figuring out a way to just duct tape band-aid the platform together that first year. And that year, I think we moved 2,500 customers. Do you remember what you did before, the year before, as far as how many customers? Yeah, the year before we moved probably 500 customers. So about 5X on that. And then, uh, so you finally were able to have the platform kind of come together a little bit more. I mean, is there anything that you wish you knew going into that, that you know now? Yeah, I wish we knew that our CTO was going to get poached by Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> But for like non-tech guys, like for instance, like I could see myself being in the exact same position as you. Maybe obviously I'm not as smart or else I would have done it. But if you're doing a moving thing, but I don't know much about tech, how do I figure that out? And what do I even ask these tech guys? And just a little bit more detail for that. Well, I think it's always important to have a network of people that can help you think through these problems. And in the beginning, we were totally clueless around the tech piece and the kind of advice that we had gone off of was that you want to find somebody you think is capable of building a tech team, somebody that you admire and respect and can trust, give them a sizable chunk of equity, get them to buy into the vision of the company and have them jump in the foxhole with you and, and start cranking. So did you not give him equity and all that other stuff that you just listed? We did. Yeah. We <laughs> and did. he still jumped ship? Yeah, he jumped ship, <laughs> which I'm sure he, he's regretting. But anyway, yes, that was kind of the story for how we I guess that was our first major challenge as a venture-backed business. And do you think that's the hardest challenge that you've had to overcome so far? No way. Well, let's hear about them. Oh, man. The thing about startups is the problems keep getting harder, actually. <laughs> does it get easier, you're telling me? It does not, unfortunately, does not get easier. The only kind of silver lining to it is that you get better as you go along. You become more experienced and kind of wise about how to, what to prioritize and, and how to get through certain things. 
and your team gets better around you. And so you're better equipped to solve these problems, but the problems just keep getting hard. And there have been times where we have been, this is a game that startups are a game of stratospheric highs and a very few number of stratospheric highs, a majority of just really, really, really low lows. And a lot of it just comes from uncertainty. And, you know, I say a lot of times that if entrepreneurs had crystal balls, they would never start companies. If you could look at your first 600 days in your company, it would scare the living crap out of you. And you'd say, screw that. You know, you'd, you'd get 10 seconds into looking at that crystal ball and you'd be like, nope, I'm uh, going back to the medical equipment field. And it's just, it's a grind. It's like a, you're ridden with worry and uncertainty and the hours are long and you've got major setbacks and you're ill-equipped and you're trying to sell everything on a vision. You know, it gets dark and hard. <laughs> well, yeah. Can you give us some more like concrete examples on it as far as what's gotten that much harder? It sounds like the stress level even goes up when I guess you have venture money now. So it feels like maybe it's not just your money put in. I don't know what the added stress is, but could you give us some examples? Yeah. I mean, you lose employees, the most inopportune times, like, you know, when we lost our first CTO, you make miscalculations into, you know, you, you put too many eggs in one basket and that whatever that, that is doesn't end up working out. So you've not only lost what you thought was going to be there, but you've lost so much time of an effort of putting into something. And it's almost impossible for me. I think it's hard to nail down specific instances of just really tough times, but. Uh, well, let's just think, I mean, I'm just trying to think maybe because I, I agree with you sometimes when there's so many, you can't even just think of one. How about this week? Has there been anything specifically that you're just like, you almost want to give up where you're like, why, why am I doing this? I'm just going to go home. I mean, yeah, this week in particular, we are, we're tracking week to week growth. And there was a change in Google's algorithm that affected our SEO that kind of pulled us away from our growth goal by like 20% for this week. It scared the crap out of us because we were tracking perfectly to goal. And then in a week where we should have been hitting our numbers, all of a sudden kind of the rug was pulled out from under us and out of nowhere and kind of freaked everybody out. And so we're scrambling to figure out like why this happened. What are the possible reasons for this? This is before we knew it was an SEO change. It kind of sends you into a tailspin again in, in the uncertainty of it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just... Did you figure out what the SEO issue was or no? It's a combination of how Google weights certain SERPs and how our, our site is currently built. And it ended up just being a little pop that I think we're going to recover from between this week and next week, hopefully. But it was just it was just like a technical change that, that Google made that affected the way that, that we were ranked on Google. I was asking you about, I guess in the pre-interview or one of the questions, you were talking about the front app being one of your favorite tools or softwares that helped you grow either personally or business-wise. What is that? Yeah, front is, a, is kind of a customer service management tool similar to like Zendesk where tickets are created for different categories of things. Like when somebody calls in and says, hey, I need to res reschedule this order, it creates a ticket in front for somebody on our customer care team to reschedule that order. Or when we receive an email from a customer saying, hey, there was a, a damage on a job or something like that, it creates a ticket for our quality team to reach out to that customer and assess the damage and compensate them for it. And anyway, it's just a huge organizational tool that can tie into any number of things. You can do social listening. It, it can create tickets for any kind of any kind of inbound communications for the team to kind of organize everything into like a, a task list for our customer service teams. It's just an amazing, it's an amazing tool. 
Has there been any other type of tools like that or that's really helped you grow or helped your business grow? I really like Google Inbox. You know, I'm the type of person that it used to be difficult for me to have a, a zero inbox. And so I would just kind of have to remember things and stay on top of things. And Google Inbox, you're able to snooze emails. You're able to say, I don't need to worry about this today. I'll throw this out into the future. You know, I want to take a look at this next Monday. You know, just kind of at the end of the day, it allows you to, every day to kind of zero out everything and either kind of archive an email or push it out into the future to turn to a time that you can take care of it then. What's your like daily schedule like? Do you have one and or weekly? What is your habits? Are you working a little bit less than whenever you started? I think that hours are probably, we're not working as many hours as we worked in, in the beginning. I think the kind of the brevity of our time is just a lot more high impact than it used to be. So stress, I don't think, has gone down one bit. Where we are today, you know, stress is so high that just constantly that you kind of need, if you were burning 100 hour weeks at this point in the business, I think your heart may stop. But still long hours. I mean, I'm, a typical day for me is, you know, getting into the office around 8.30 and usually I leave, I'd say on average by 7 o'clock, 6.30, 7 o'clock and go home, see my wife, my daughter, spend as much time as I can and get back at it around 10 or 11 o'clock shooting emails before I go to bed. How long have you been with your wife? Our six year anniversary is coming up here in about 17 days. So, and is she the girl that you moved into the dorm the first time? No, she's not. <laughs> It'd be a perfect story, right? But I guess she's had to go through the ups and downs, I imagine, with you. Can you tell us about that? We were talking about this last night, actually. Perfect. I should have been there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, we, honestly, last night we were sitting there and saying, you know, what an amazing experience this has been for my wife and I to go to through together because we've both been through these times and, you know, she's been at the, you know, five minutes behind everything that's ever happened at the company and has stayed up worrying at night and has celebrated during the big successes and it's been a just an incredibly bonding experience for us. And I can't say it's all been sunshine and rainbows. It's been hard. A lot of sacrifice that comes with starting a company. I think we are all just kind of gripping to the idea that we're burning it as hard as we can burn it now that so that we may be fortunate later to be able to spend more time with each other than others can. So it's been an amazing experience that has, has brought us together, to be honest. And no, I think that's important to touch on is that especially if you're in a, like a long-term relationship or maybe eventually getting married, is dealing with that time, right? If you're a single guy doing all this, it makes it pretty easy. But even when it's just a girlfriend, maybe it's a little bit easier. But once you start having a wife and these other commitments, it gets a little bit harder. I think that's the idea behind every entrepreneur. So could you talk about how you're able to overcome that? Because it sounded like you were saying that you worked a lot there in the beginning and that's kind of when y'all started dating it. Yeah, co-founders and I, we lived in Chattanooga. My wife moved to Chattanooga first, but I was in Chattanooga for at least a month or two before she moved. And my co-founders' wives didn't move until a year later. We were working these 100-hour weeks and that was a really tough time, especially if at this time, our wives didn't know that this that bellhops would turn out to what it is today. And here we are just grinding and grinding and grinding on this thing that we didn't have a doubt in our mind that we would fail. But they're seeing us just kind of giving away our life to pour into this thing. And this is the first company that they'd ever been a part of starting. And it was really hard. But the good thing is, was for Stephen and Matt, was their, their wives were living in Birmingham. So they could stay up until you know midnight at the office and not have any guilt about not going home. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you being a patron. 
Uh, no worries, man. I, I came across your podcast a few weeks ago, and I definitely uh, enjoy them. So uh, I wanted to at least show my commitment. And at the amount that you uh, it costs, I, I wanted to go for the highest tier. So. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. So were you just Googling? like a looking for another podcast, and yours popped up. And I was like, let me check this out. And then, you know, I listened to one, and I love how in-depth and detail. The first one I listened to was the uh, Mining Key guy. Oh, that was a good one. That was a good one to start off with. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm in the franchising, right? Okay, so, well, I'm in a franchise. I definitely, uh, it definitely was a good one to start off. And um, I like the questions that you ask. You know, you hold them to numbers and... So I think I've listened to maybe 60 in the last three weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, you've been binging. As far as like episodes, what's been one of your favorite? The Meineke guy. The Meineke, yeah. <laughs> you really did start yeah. off with I thought so yeah. too. I've been telling yeah. everyone how great that one was. And, and and he's one of the main reasons I joined the Patreon too. I was like, man, I got to hear the end of his story. It took, <laughs> it took me a couple weeks, but uh, yeah, I was like, yeah, I got to hear the end of his story. So if you want to hear that episode with Charles Bonfiglio, go check out episode 165. And then your wife, I guess, or at the time, girlfriend's trying to, I guess, make new friends or whatnot, too. Mm-hmm. I guess he's waiting on you. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And, and I didn't have the benefit of that. So, you know, and I started feeling bad because I had to call it quits at nine or 10. So it's a big sacrifice. No easy way to do it. You know, I don't think there's ever been a, I hope there has never been a company in the history of man that where you could just kind of hit the easy button and it just kind of took off because I would be resentful of those people. <laughs> Understood. <laughs> Looking back, what's the last lesson or words of wisdom that you would want to leave the people who are listening who hopefully are those young entrepreneurs that are out of college, maybe have a job, they want to go with their buddies and get drunk in a cabin and try to come up with an idea. What would you tell them as far as entrepreneurship and starting a business? I've got a few things that I've I kind of teed up that I think are have been some of the biggest learnings that I've taken and Kind of one is to do things that don't scale in the beginning. It's actually a quote that Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator, said, and it was something that we really clung to in the beginning of the company when there weren't, we hadn't written a playbook. We didn't know how to do this thing. We just had to try a bunch of stuff and things that wouldn't, we couldn't automate to just drive growth. We did whatever it took by any means necessary. We were writing thank you notes to every one of our customers. We were doing personal videos, thank you videos to customers. We are doing all this stuff that we knew would never scale in the long run, but it was able to get us you know, our first batch of customers and kind of start driving the, the culture of the company. Another piece is, is to hire people from day one that are better than you. And this is cliche to say, but it's the only easy button in startups. Hire people that are better than you sell them on your vision, and then get out of their way. That's the only thing that, that I've found to be the easy part of growing a company. And I think a big thing that founders do wrong in the beginning is this idea that companies don't fail because founders don't work hard. No, I agree with that. I guess anyone who's founded is trying to bust your ass 99% yeah. of the time. It's like Zero Dark Thirty, where the Jessica Chastain had pitched the Secretary of Defense and on like where she thought Osama bin Laden was, and then Secretary of Defense gets in the elevator afterwards and looks at his assistant, and he's like, "So, so what do you think about the girl?" And his assistant goes, "I think she's pretty freaking smart." And Alfini looks at his assistant and goes, "It's the freaking CIA, Jimmy. We're all freaking smart." Right. It's like a prerequisite in startups like, that founders work hard. And if you don't, you're just not going to make it. I guess to my point, companies don't fail because founders don't work hard. They fail because they work on the wrong problems. You have to have good taste 
in problems in the early days. It's easy to kind of look at, at your 10 problems for the week and just start with the easy ones because it feels good to get wins, right? But really what you need to do is start with the hard ones because those biggest ones that you just can't put off. So you always have to be honest with what problems that, that you're working on and never work on a problem just because it's going to be an easy win for you. You know, I think having strong convictions but holding on to them loosely is a really important trait of a founder. And kind of take our company, started a dorm moving company. And we had a conviction that if we built an incredible workforce that we targeted college students with, we could change the way that college students move. And when the market started slapping us in the face saying, look, you don't need to focus on college students. This is a tiny market, super seasonal. You need to start going after the main market. We were, you know, I can't tell you, that was not an easy decision to make. We were gripping to this original idea. And it was hard for us to say, okay, we're going to go into the mainstream. We're going to start moving everybody. And so we had conviction in what we were doing. But the second that we realized that we had data that was supporting the fact that we should maybe look into expanding our service offering, we made that decision. And so that's have strong convictions, but hold on to them loosely. It's kind of like the Airbnb story. They did the same thing. They started with a business, Airbed and Breakfast. And they started onboarding hosts and the hosts started emailing, calling back to Airbnb headquarters. And they said, hey, I'm not going to be, or I've got a guest bedroom that is just open. There's a bed in there. I feel kind of bad like putting this airbed on my living room and making somebody stay on that when they could just sleep in my guest room. Can I let them sleep in the guest room? Airbnb founders kind of reluctantly, they were like, well, I guess you can do that, but you got to put the airbed on top of the bed. You know, they were like so stuck on this tunnel. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. And then they started having customers that say, hey, we're not going to be, I'm not going to be in my apartment that weekend, but like, can I just rent the whole apartment out? And Airbnb founders was like, well, no, how are you going to cook them breakfast if you're not there? <laughs> it's like, you're missing the point here. The market's trying to tell you what to do. You got to be able to kind of hold on to those things loosely. Thank you for those tips. You might be the most prepared guest we've had. So appreciate it, Cam and War Eagle. Hey, War Eagle. Thanks for having me. If you like this service slash tech interview, then you'll probably like these episodes too. Try episode 53 with Greg Roulette, where he talks about his failed career as a rapper that led to him starting his marketing company. Or episode 51 with Adam Robinson. There he talks about laying off his entire staff during the 2007 recession and being a half a million dollars in debt. Or try episode 42 with Justin Cook. He discusses how to buy an online business that's already up and running instead of starting one from scratch. As always, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Millionaire Interviews.